0: Lord, you are forevermore, and we rejoice this morning, God, that we can gather together and extol your praises of you being forevermore, not temporary, and not fleeting, but everlasting. And so we come to you this morning, God, um, just as a weak vessel, Lord, unable, marred and stricken by sin, scarred, but imputed with your righteousness, Christ once from uh, taken from what would be finished into the everlasting. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, as we open up your word this morning, as we look uh, into Isaiah, Lord, you would open our eyes and our ears to the glories contained within your scripture. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would work as, uh, through this instrument, feeble instrument as it is, Lord, through my mouth, uh, that you would be made known great and famous here this morning among us. And that I would be made less, and you would be more, the Father. And we just ask this in your holy name. Amen. I don't know how to do all this. I think you tell you to be seated, so there you go. You can be seated. Uh, obviously, I'm not Ken. So, uh, you get me this morning. Um, a little bit of transparency. This kind of came to me yesterday morning prior to paintball, so I feel slightly underprepared, but um, nonetheless I rejoice that I can be just a minister of the gospel and for the opportunity to stand uh, before you preaching the word of God, so bear with me, Um, we'll get through this, I have lots of notes, it could be five minutes, it could be 50 minutes, I have no idea, just send it. Um, our sermon text this morning is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. If you turn to your Bibles, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, and we'll stand and read that together. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I did that okay, right? <laughs> so far, so good. I'll keep the jokes down. I have, a, I have a tendency to uh, want to make light of things, and I'll do my best to keep it serious. It seems quite easy to redo in our minds a historical event and to reimagine this event using the rather flippant question. The question of what if. This idea could be stated other as, let's say, counterfactual history. In its most simple form, we would ask questions like, what if I had done this in my life and not done that? Uh, What if I had gone to this college instead of that college? What if I had kept in contact with this person from my past? And what if it would have made a difference in their life? What if I had run right instead of left on the paintball field? Serious questions. Although we are tempted to assign an esteemed importance to these what-if questions, ultimately their bearing on our lives falls short in light of God's sovereign plan. However, what if you knew you were stricken with grief, exiled from everything you know, all that is familiar and essentially good in your life, stripped from your existence, and now pressed into extreme oppression and a dismal sense of hope? And what if you knew it was your sins that had caused these things? Then perhaps a simple recounting of your most recent days quickly brings to the surface reminders of greed, or lust, rage, jealousy. Mm, And what if? You simply had rolled your eyes at God's law one too many times. What if you had thumbed your nose at his penultimate majesty? And what if, all the while, through all of that, someone was standing by to remind you it was your fault? This was, in fact, a reality for the Jews in exile under Babylon, drifted, devastated, dislodged, and now desperate as the questions of what if, mounted in one's mind. So we'll get into a a little more informal backdrop for Isaiah here, the first 39 chapters. So I'm gonna go through through the first 39 chapters rather quickly in about five minutes, starting with um, some basic and quick Old Testament chronology. It might be in order here uh, just for the context of our passage today in Isaiah 40. So Let's put Abraham at 2,000 B.C., Moses and the Exodus at 1,500 B.C., David at 1,000 B.C. 2,000, 1,500, 1,000. Then we had Saul, the first king, then David, then Solomon. Then in 930 B.C., after Solomon, Israel's divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. After 930, we have 750 B.C. It rolls around, and Isaiah is commissioned. We know this because we have record of this from Isaiah 6.1. It states, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 750 B.C., King Uzziah dead. 2,000, 1,500, 1,000, 750. Here we're at Isaiah. <coughs> this then starts to form the backdrop for the book of Isaiah. Now at play here are some political posturing between three entities. Two of those are the two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and the Assyrian Empire. Now the Assyrian Empire at the time is quickly gaining in power and reach, and the southern kingdom Judah is well aware of its forthcoming advances. So Judah's king, King Ahaz, who followed Jotham and Uzziah, was a wicked king, and when confronted with the question of being, are you pro-Assyrian or anti-Assyrian, King Ahaz cast his lot with Assyria. Simply looking for a way out of a jam, Ahaz decided to cozy up with Assyria while crossing his fingers that Assyria would then turn their imperialistic attentions toward Israel in the north. This isn't Judah's first rodeo down the path of corrupt conjunctions. A precedent for this action is to be noted here in the scripture. It says Judah would also look to ally themselves with Egypt. Uh Isaiah thirty six six reads, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. So whether Assyria or Egypt, the strategy of King Ahaz to weasel out of a problem was simply to make an alliance. Any alliance. There are numerous implications here worth preaching on, but we'll just keep going. King Ahaz dies. Hezekiah becomes the new king of Judah. Hezekiah is a good king. In fact, we see a prayer of Hezekiah in Isaiah 37, and I'll turn to that and read it. Beginning in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wooden stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that to you alone are the Lord. <coughs> so here we have Hezekiah and Sennacherib kind of in a tussle. Hezekiah is praying to the Lord, and as it stands, um, it should be noted that in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, Israel, this isn't where Hezekiah is, but the northern kingdom fell to Assyria and Sennacherib. But he didn't quite make it to Jerusalem, which was in Judah. Uh, more accurately, in 701 B.C., <coughs> we have uh, God intervening with the assailing of 185,000 Assyrian men overnight. So... Sennacherib was staging to overtake Judah, and overnight, 185,000 men killed. They, being the Assyrians, decided to leave, and why wouldn't you, right? Kind of a daunting task to wake up to that. Um, On a side note, real quickly, in your family worship, if you want to do some continued study of this, there is a biblical artifact known as Sennacherib's prism. So it was the leader of the Assyrian army who inscribed the events of his uh, efforts and attacks on neighboring nations and countries. And we have a record on this artifact. It's in the British Museum to this day. And it actually accounts for what's written here in Hezekiah and then also in er, uh, Isaiah and then also in Second Kings. So if you want to look up Sennacherib, it's very interesting to uh, see the very words of God, you know, emulated within archaeology so just a side note there so and there you have it that's the fast forward version of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah that's pretty much the groundwork of what's happening um, throughout the prophet Isaiah is encouraging the people of God to trust in him even when the enemies are at the doorstep Paraphr- paraphrase it might sound like don't throw your lot in with the enemies of the Lord Again, more could be said here since certain applications can be made. But the condensed version goes something like this. Trust in him, pray to him, obey him, follow him, listen to him. Hezekiah did. And as a result, we have Isaiah bringing these words to Hezekiah in Isaiah 39. In verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house And that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days." So we see the final fulfillment of Isaiah's words to Hezekiah in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Jerusalem, which is now under the rule of King Zedekiah, and brought them into exile. Chapter 39 of Isaiah concludes with devastating words. Everything will be carried away to Babylon. The book of Lamentations is written by the prophet Jeremiah as he mourns for the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the loss of the nation because of their sins. In the first chapter alone of Lamentations, it is declared four times that there is no comfort for the people. I will turn there and read those. Lamentations chapter 1 reads in verse 2. You can see these in your sermon notes. Uh-huh. Lamentations 1-2 reads, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Verse 9 in the same chapter, chapter 1 reads, Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hand, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Verse 21 also reads, They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. There is no comfort for our sins. There's nothing that we can do for our sinful condition. What will God do now? What will God do with a people steeped in their sins and deserving of wrath? What will God say now? This act of extradition would certainly have caused the people of God to come with grips and the possibility that God had abandoned them. Here this morning, as we turn the page from chapter 39 to chapter 40 in Isaiah, let us proclaim these four things as salve for the banished. First, we have sufficient comforter. Secondly, we have waymaker. Thirdly, the foreverness of his word, and then my favorite word, the unforeverness, which I made up, of the flesh. And fourthly, the greatness of God. Let's start with one, sufficient comforter. Scripture emphatically declares that the God of the Bible is the God of all comfort. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, verse 1. 2 Corinthians, verse 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He alone is the source of real and lasting comfort, the kind that is not based on the fleeting and momentary uncertainties in our life. And Isaiah 40 begins thus with the call to comfort God's people it reads again comfort comfort my people says your god we have in verse one the repeated use of the word comfort prior to emojis all you young people stating something twice was a point of emphasis in the scriptures we have examples in the new testament my god my god why have you forsaken me we also have our lord saying "Verily, verily, or truly truly this uh said it once, but as a state of emphasis or a point of emphasis, it was repeated to get you to pay attention. Not to uh, today. You'd look at your cell phone if you see a yellow circle. You'd pay more attention because it might uh, invoke some sort of response. We also see in Isaiah, back in chapter 6, we see holy, holy, holy. We sung that this morning. Here, this is kind of the ultimate emphasis. We don't really have another instance in Scripture where it's repeated three times except here, holy, holy, holy. Also, for us to take note and to pay attention to what's going on there, in this regard, it's God's call that he is holy and none, none is above him. It is God here who speaks emphatically, comfort, comfort, spoken as he who wishes to comfort his people, whom he has chosen, the elect with whom he has made a covenant. Remember, captives and slaves to their own sin here, unable to loose his bondage on their own accord. They have, the devastating effects of exile are in full view here. The temptation of the captive to look to a tangible remedy, let's say uh, the proverbial dog walking past the jail cell with a key strung around its neck, right? And then a corresponding plea to an unknown God, little g, God, for the bone. The bone, of course, is to lure the dog closer in effort to snatch the key and secure freedom. But opposed to the randomness and hopelessness of this analogy, we have Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort for my people, the very people in chains, marred and stricken for their sin, given the promise for the day of salvation. And not a surreptitious promise, as this was scribed here in Isaiah about 100 years prior to captivity. I would imagine any number of exiles taking refuge on this account as God provides hope in what is to come, a theme repeated throughout these 11 verses. Also, should there be any significance here in the repetition of the word comfort that would point to a people's unwillingness to be comforted and the unrelenting pursuit of the Lord to speak and to speak and to speak and to speak again, it shows the vehement and hearty desire of our Lord to have the broken comforted I would submit that it does, but to what end? Well, let's read on. Verse uh, 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. God speaks tenderly to those who are in need of comfort and cry out to her. Cry, the Hebrew word here, suggests a strong and clear proclamation. Though spoken tenderly and in love, the speaking that is taking place is to be proclaimed in a bold and decisive manner. There is to be no hesitancy or uncertainty or indecisiveness in its proclamation. The the ability to comfort people in a manner that leads them on to growth and effectiveness comes from a clear understanding of the message of the Bible as God's holy word. It never comes from the vain substitutes or strategies that we are also prone to lean on or to use for our own attempts to stray from offensiveness. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak that which will revive her heart and be sincere to her and to all that belong to her and wish her well. Do not whisper it, but cry to her. Cry aloud to encourage the saints in the full assurance of faith as well as to show sinners their transgressions. Make her hear it. And let us be bold in our confidence as the Lord speaks, comfort, comfort my people. To do less would and should grieve the heart of the believer. that her warfare has ended. The Christian life is warfare, amen? Lots of things out there making it difficult to be a Christian these days. But this struggle will not last always. The warfare will be accomplished. And then the soldiers in this battle will enter into rest. Desmond Doss was a medic stationed on the island of Okinawa And the official citation for his Medal of Honor went something like this. It describes how on April 29, 1945, during an assault on a high summit, heavy enemy gunfire inflicted 75 serious injuries among the Americans. Doss, refusing to leave the fire-swept area, carried all 75 casualties one by one to the edge of the cliff and then lowered each one down on a rope to friendly hands. While those events are extraordinary enough, Doss was also recognized for his actions in May of 1945. He was wounded in the legs with a grenade, but even while injured, prioritized the lives of fellow soldiers while caring for his own injuries. He sat there five hours before medics started carrying him back on a stretcher. But on the way back, after spotting a more severely wounded man, gave up his spot on the stretcher, went back on the ground to sit, and while stationed on the ground again, tending to his wounds, he was hit by sniper fire shattering his arm bone, prompting him to rig up a rudimentary splint and then crawled 300 yards over rough terrain to a first aid station. We can be sure Desmond Doss was relieved when he was told the warfare had ended. Surveying all that we are up against and all that we have to fight for, the promise from Scripture is this, That our struggle is sure to end. That her iniquity is pardoned. Also, still in verse 2. God is reconciled to her, and she shall no longer be treated as one guilty before him, satisfied, paid off, to be pleased with an atonement for sins. We can see that they, they being those in exile, had endured the punishment which God saw to be necessary, and now he was satisfied and took delight in restoring them to their own land. When God is satisfied with that atonement, and when he has pleasure or delight in setting the soul free from the bondage of sin, and admitting that sinner into his favor, that is the gospel here in Isaiah. He has given the one unto us, and he has redeemed us by his blood. Let's turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 5. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us believers in this room look to Christ in his sufferings. Receive from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. For the satisfaction Christ made by his death was of such an infinite value that it was even more than double the punishment of sin. For God spared not even his own son. Brothers and sisters, you have been forgiven, your sin is pardoned, you are homeward bound. Point number two Waymaker. As mentioned previously, before God sent his people into captivity in Babylon, he gave them these precious promises for continued support and comfort in time of their trouble. In their time of trouble, excuse me. And we can imagine the great use it was to them as a glorious and gracious light of prophecy. But our reading here in Isaiah looks further yet into greater things, that of Christ and the gospel found in, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We see we have these mercies of God to rescue the Jewish nation, now bearing the very resemblance to the glorious things performed by our Savior for our redemption. Here in verses 3 through 5, and I'll read them here shortly, We see an expression of the terms to show plainly that while Isaiah is speaking of the redemption of the Jews from exile, he had in his thoughts a more glorious deliverance, a once and for all deliverance in Jesus Christ. This is the way way maker. Verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The time of the exile of Babylon was about to be completed. God was about to move his people again to their own country through a pathless wilderness as he had formerly brought them out of Egypt to the promised land. Here, Isaiah regards himself as hearing the voice of a herald or a forerunner, so to speak, in the wilderness, giving direction for the return of the people. So kids, quick quiz. Who was thought to be the forerunner or someone who came before Jesus, announcing his arrival? Not Jesus. John the Baptist. Thank you, Judah. This passage has a reference to John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah, found in Matthew 3.3. 3. Just because I like to turn pages in my Bible, we'll go there too. Matthew 3. Verse 3 reads, For this is he who is, was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The events are so similar in their main features that the same language is used to describe both. John was nurtured in the desert and spent his early life there. He began to preach in a mountainous country lying east of Jerusalem and sparsely inhabited, in which was usually spoken of as a desert or wilderness. And it was here that his voice was heard announcing the coming of the Messiah and that he pointed him to his own followers. People of God must be prepared by repentance and faith. And in order to call them both to these, we have here the voice of one crying in the wilderness, applied to John the Baptist. Though God was the speaker, he was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, and his business was to prepare the way of the Lord, to ready people's minds for the reception and entertainment of the gospel of Christ. The way of the Lord is prepared two ways. First way is by the repentance of sin. Second is by the confidence in the word of the Lord and not in any other creature. The first one, by the repentance of sin, that which John ba- the Baptist priest, preached. Uh, an alarm is given. Let us take notice of it. God is coming in a way of mercy, and we must prepare for him. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Prepare yourselves for him, and let all that would stand as an obstruction be suppressed completely. This is powerful language we find in verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places the plain. Make room for Christ. Make straight a highway for him. We must get our hearts leveled by his grace. Those that are hindered from having comfort in Christ by your sor- sorrows or despondencies Those that struggle with depression, sadness, difficulties, always on the negative side of life. These are the valleys that must be exalted and raised up in Christ. Those that are hindered from comfort in Christ by a proud arrogance of their own merit and worth, made lofty in their selfish ambitions. These are the mountains and hills that must be made low. Those that have entertained disdain for the word and ways of God contradicting even that which is plain and easy in Scripture only because it disagrees with their secular interests. These are the crooked that must be made straight and the rough places that must be made plain. The gospel of Christ will go forward and will not fail. You can think today just watching the news things that are crooked that need to be straightened things that are high that need to be made low Things that are low that need to be raised up. So, repentance, this prepares the way of the Lord. And thus, God will, by his grace, prepare his own way in all the vessels of mercy whose hearts he opens and touches. Saints, pray to this end. When this is done, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, not the Jews only. They shall see and admire it, see it and bid it welcome as the return out of captivity was taken notice by the neighboring nations, and it shall be the accomplishment of the word of God. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it, and therefore the hand of the Lord will accomplish. So that's by repentance. Second point, by confidence in the word of the Lord and not in any creature. When we depend entirely upon the word of God and build our hopes on that with an assurance that will not make us ashamed, The power of man is not to be feared, for it shall be as grass before the word of the Lord. It shall wither and be trampled underfoot. The word of God will stand forever. And this is the satisfaction of all believers when they find all their creature comforts withering and fading like grass. To prepare the way of the Lord, we must be convinced, one, of the vanity of the creature, that all flesh is grass, weak, withering. We ourselves are so and therefore cannot save ourselves. All our friends are so, our friends can't save us, they're unable. All the beauty of the creature, which we might render to be kind, mostly good, caring, is but as the flower of the grass, soon blasted, and therefore cannot recommend us to God at all. We are dying creatures. All of our comforts in this world are dying comforts, and therefore cannot be the joy of our immortal souls. We must look further for a salvation, look further for a portion and two of the validity of the promise of God. We must be convinced that the word of the Lord can do that for us which our flesh cannot, that as it stands forever, it will furnish us with happiness that will last as long as our souls, which must live forever for the things that are not seen but must be believed are eternal. Jump quickly back with me to our exiles now in Babylon. Babylon was separated from Judea by an immense tract of country, which was one continuous desert. A large part of Arabia called Arabia Deserts was situated in this region. To pass in a direct line, therefore, from Babylon to Jerusalem, it was necessary to go through this desolate region. It was here that the prophet speaks of hearing a voice commanding the hills to be leveled and the valleys filled up, that there might be a highway for the people to return. The whole scene could be represented here as kind of a march or return of God at the head of his people to the land of Judea. This idea is taken from the practice of eastern kings who, whenever they entered on a journey or an expedition, especially if they wanted to traverse through a barren or unfrequented or inhospitable land, country, they would send messengers or heralds before them to prepare the way. To make this trip, it would be necessary for them to provide supplies, make bridges, find fording places over streams, level hills, construct causeways, make a way through the forest which might lie in their intended line of march. This was necessary because the expeditions often involved the necessity to march through countries where there were no highways that would allow for the passage of an army. Verse 5 And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And the glory of the Lord, the phrase here means the majesty, power, or honor of God. He would display his power and show himself to be a covenant keeping God by delivering his people from their bondage and rejoining them to their own land. This glory and faithfulness would be shown in his delivering them from their captivity in Babylon, and yet it would still more fantastically be shown in ascending the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to accomplish the deliverance of his people in later days. And all flesh, all human beings. The idea is that the deliverance of his people would be such a display of a divine trespassing from heaven. The deliverance from Babylon would turn so many heads in effect. We have the literal discernment of all flesh witnessing his power and glory. In modern-day terms, this went viral, right? There is so much to say about this verse, which allows it not to be confined to a Jewish road trip. It is more applicable to the advent of the Christ and to the fact that through him the glory of God would be manifest, be made manifest to all the nations. For the mouth of the Lord, this is the strongest possible confirmation that it would be fulfilled. God had certainly promised her deliverance from bondage and in a manner that would attract the attention of all nations. He has spoken, and it was so. Third point this morning: Foreverness of His Word, the unforeverness of the flesh. Before a person should reach out for God's salvation so they can experience God's comfort, they must face the reality of what they are: mere flesh. Mankind must realize their sinfulness and inability, reject any form of self-trust, and then rely on God's provision. Verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Verses 6 through 8 are clear on this point. The frailty and temporal effect on mankind versus the God eternal and his word. The words abruptly, the words all flesh. So abruptly after reading all flesh, it should call to mind for the believer the futility of life when we are walking in the way of the flesh by our sinful nature, trusting in ourselves in our own pursuits or solutions rather than walking by the spirit of God and living by trust in his word. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 6. We'll read this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Mankind is like grass that produces the lovely flowers of the field. All mankind's glory, our exploits, our inventions, our ideologies, accomplishments, kingdoms, strengths, self-made religions, religious strivings, everything in which we glory is like the grass that withers and the flower of grass that fades. Our accomplishments in the flesh are often glorious and beautiful in the morning but in a short time, like the flowers under the hot Palestinian sun, they soon become scorched, withered, and gone, lost forever. Isaiah would be, have this in view, the climatic conditions of Palestine. In the morning after a cool night, with its dew, the hills would be an array of colors that would spring up during the night, but before evening, because of the hot Palestinian sun and dry, scorching winds, they would be scorched and withered. God wants us to reckon with the fact of our frailty, inability, and the transient fleeting nature of life apart from him he wants us to see that in ourselves we can produce nothing that lasts or that we can take into eternity or that can take us into eternity with god he wants us to see that when man does not base his life on the foundation of god's word and attempts to live without a deep trust in god then all his ideologies ideas purposes hopes dreams accomplishments strategies for life Nothing but temporary and futile, little more than dust that the Lord simply blows on it and is scattered. The most majestic of man's glory is still only flesh. John 6:63. 6, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh in its natural state is simply insufficient to break the barrier of time and extend beyond this life. It's incapable or even give us true meaning in this life. And Isaiah closes these verses with, the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah calls our attention to the eternal character of God's all-sufficient Word, the inerrant, infallible, and God-breathed Bible that has stood the test of time, regardless of man's and Satan's attempts to stamp it out. It is this book, the Holy Bible, the Word of God, that is the means along with the Spirit of God by which we are begotten to new life. We can find strength in this life, right, and can count for eternity. In other words, it is God's Holy Word that gives comfort because Regardless of the vaporness of one's life, regardless of what transpires in history during one's life, regardless of coronavirus, regardless of presidential elections, insert any modern-day dilemma. Regardless, God's word is sure when believed and acted on, does several marvelous things. It brings us into fellowship with God through its message of salvation through Christ and gives us eternal life. It extends our life into the eternal future with God and firmly assures us God's promises will be fulfilled. Secondly, it is the basis for making this life count for eternity, for taking us beyond the superficial, the plastic, the temporal. It takes our lives out of the realm of futility and into the realm of eternal meeting and eternal rewards. Why would we march on the sidewalk outside of an abortion clinic if it wasn't for the word of God? Why would we gather Sunday mornings? Why would we endure one another if it wasn't for the Word of God? Right? Why would you endure me? I, w- I don't even want to endure me. It's the Word of God that takes our lives out of the realm of futility and into the realm of meaning and reward. God's eternal word becomes the means of strength and comfort, peace and joy in the ups and downs of this life, not as the world gives, but only as the Lord Jesus gives through his word as with Israel, we too have the promise of seeing and experiencing God's glory through the person of Jesus Christ Christ and the believers, the hope of glory the glory of a transformed life the glory of a resurrected body, the glory of rewards and the guaranteed glory of heaven for believers in Christ, for those who have trusted in the Savior, the resurrected body and heaven are guaranteed by the finished work of Christ. Fourth point this morning, final one, the greatness of God. Verse 9, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd; he will gather the lam- lambs in his arms, and will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. How it shall be revealed! It shall be revealed to Zion and Jerusalem. Notice shall be given to the remnant that are in Zion and Jerusalem, saying to them, Behold, your God! It shall be proclaimed by Zion and Jerusalem. Let them lift up their voice with strength and not be afraid. Let them not be afraid or fear. Let them say to the cities of Judah and all inhabitants of the country, Behold your God. When God is going on with the salvation of his people, let them spread the news among their friends. Let them tell them that it is God that has done it. Whoever were the instruments, God was the author. It is their God, a God in covenant with them. And he does it as theirs, and they will reap the benefit and comfort of it. This is our God. We have waited for him. The voice crying in the wilderness gave notice that he was coming, but now notice is given that he has come. Behold the Lamb of God. Take a full view of your Redeemer. Behold your King. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will come with strong hand as well, too strong to be obstructed. though it may be opposed, his strong hand shall subdue his people to himself and shall restrain and conquer his and their enemies. He will come who is strong enough to break through all the difficulties that lie in his way. Our Lord Jesus was full of power, a mighty Savior. He shall reign in defiance of all opposition. His arms shall rule, shall overrule for him to his own glory, for he is his own end. He shall recompense all according to their works as a righteous judge. His reward is with him. He brings along with him as a returning prince punishments for the rebels and blessing and enrichment for his followers. He shall proceed and accomplish his purpose. His work is before him. That is, he knows perfectly well what he has to do, which way to go about it, and how to compass it. He himself knows what he will do. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God is the shepherd of Israel, and Christ is the good shepherd. The same arm that rules with a strong hand of might also leads and feeds with the kind hand of a shepherd. He takes care of all his flock, the little flock. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. His word is food for his flock to feed on. He takes particular care of those that most need his care, the lambs that are weak, cannot help themselves and are unaccustomed to hardship, and those that are with young. The good shepherd has tender care for children, for weak believers, and those that are of a sorrowful spirit. These are the lambs of his flock. He will gather them in the arms of his power. His strength shall be made perfect in their weakness. Paul you know, writes that in 2 Corinthians 12.9. He will gather them in when they wander, gather them when they are fall down, gather them together when they are dispersed, and gather them home to himself at last. And all this with his own arm, out of which none shall be able to pluck them. He will carry them in the bosom of his love and cherish them forever. He is forevermore. When they tire or are weary or sick or faint, he will carry them on and take care that they are not left behind. He will gently lead them. In closing, if you are burdened and hampered by your flesh, frailty and sinfulness today, if you desire comfort, You must be anchored to the one who has the capacity to give comfort, Christ alone. To make provision for your sinfulness, Christ alone. And give strength in the midst of the turbulent waters of life, Christ alone. The great value of the Bible is this, is that it is where we find God and his plan for salvation. The original root of the word comfort seems to reflect the idea of breathing deeply. Hence, the physical display of one's feelings, usually sorrow, compassion, or comfort, perhaps as one takes in a deep sigh of relief as they experience God's comfort. The same word, comfort, occurs in Psalm 23:4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This Hebrew word brings, speaks of bringing relief to the hearts of his people, and the sigh of one assured of their sins being pardoned and atoned for. It's the soldier at ease after years of service in which he is thrust to the forefront of warfare, one who has witnessed and bore the strife of others being offered final comfort. If your bondage and sin has you asking what if of your life, if you fear the day is coming when all catches up with you and the walls of captivity are closing in, I have good news. Behold your God. Repent and be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. I pray that the words were spoken, Lord, would sink sink deep within our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Pray that the word of God, the foreverness of the word of God, would illuminate each life in here, Lord, and that you would draw them unto a relationship with you. That we would never abandon the calling and to be obedient to your scripture and your holy word. Lord, I pray that the affections of the world would fade away and the affections for you would grow all the brighter in light of the current culture and climate and time that we live in. You'd be easily discouraged, Lord, but we anticipate seeing the mountains leveled, the valleys risen up, as you make a way and you prepare a way, Lord, that you would make the crooked straight, that you would draw those that are unsaved to the saving knowledge of you in Christ Jesus. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.